You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hey everybody, welcome to episode three of Just Getting Started right here on Westwood One. I'm your humble host, Rich Eisen. We've already had some great chats with Matthew McConaughey, the Academy Award winning actor and best-selling author. Also Damon John, the creator of FUBU and uh, the shark from Shark Tank. Just going through some origin stories, going through some stories of how some people that we know and hopefully love have gone about their business to get their business to where they want to be today and perhaps you can glean something along the way of maybe you just getting started on something new or just getting started with something that you wanted to do that's the whole point of this show and why it's called exactly that so let me get right to it my guest is somebody who has had uh, a couple of reboots of her career that is now going gangbusters with her owning her own production business after many years of being on cnn to say the least Joining me here, as promised, is the founder and CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions, which she started almost 10 years ago about after leaving CNN. And here on Just Getting Started is the aforementioned Soledad O'Brien. How are you, Soledad? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm, you know, all things considered, if you think about how crazy it's been over the last yes. year, I feel very, very fortunate. I've had, a, you know, mostly healthy people in my life and my kids knocking and on wood school is kind of churning along and so yeah net we've been holding in pretty well how old are your kids they're how not they? little which is amazing because i have friends who got little kids and it's so hard doing zoom school with yep. kids that you have to sit there with but my twin boys are 16 i took them for their first drive with their learner's permits today oh my god <laughs> and teaching twins that's terrible and then my daughters are in college i have a freshman in college so she's 19 and a sophomore who's 20 well, I've got 12, 10, and 7, so that's been- um, A lot. It's been something. It's been something. They need to get out a little bit more. You're right, though. We're all healthy and knocking on wood again, but that's the whole concept of this show is that there are many people out there who are not on the straight and narrow right now or are thinking about restarting their lives or rebooting their lives, and again, you're a perfect guest to have on a show like this one because you've done it many times. A couple of times, <laughs> Uh, you know, a handful of times. And so how did you get started in your career? You started in Boston. Did I see that you're also pre-med on top of it? Yeah, I started WBZ TV as uh -huh. a PA and really as an intern and then as a PA. And that sounds great, but actually it's because I couldn't really handle the thought of going to medical school. I was an undergrad at Harvard and I was taking a bunch of pre-med classes with my sister, who's now a surgeon. <laughs> so you can okay. see one of, it worked out for one of us and not for the other. And I remember she's, she's a researcher and a scientist. And she used to say to me, why you could take with you a little card with all the formulas. And she'd say, mm -hmm. why are you memorizing these things? Like you should be able to deduce Y equals MX plus B, right? X, Y axis, B is a variable in space. What else could it be? I'm breaking out in hives from my science classes back day. I have not heard that 
equation in a very long time. And it really wasn't that equation, but it was something like that. And you know, <laughs> it, it was it was so interesting, right? Because she just understood and cared about the science. And I was like, right. oh, I can memorize a lot of stuff and regurgitate it on a test. <laughs> and and it was interesting to see someone who really, I mean, she was so perplexed by me. And I was we were very different personalities. She'd love to sleep in late and rush to class, like, like carrying a bagel and her coffee. And I'd like to get up early and have my four color pen. But she really wanted to understand the science. And, and I actually was like, wow, I think I'm not really a scientist. Like I want to, I like the idea behind medicine. I like the people and helping people generally, but I don't think this is for me. And that kind of set me into a bit of a tailspin. So I left school and got a gig working as an intern first and then working as a production assistant at WBZ TV. So then how'd you wind up in front of the camera? How did that happen? From BZ, I was working with a medical reporter. And uh, from there, I started working at NBC News. And NBC News at the time was really good about like, what do you want to do? And how do you want to get there? And very helpful. And so with their help, I ended up going out to San Francisco, which was like the number five market at the time, uh, (laughs) and working at KRON TV as a first year on air reporter. Your average reporter starting salary was $90,000. They started me at 30. (laughs) So... But I was so happy. I mean, I really, and and I had so much to learn. I mean, I had been a producer by then at the network. And so I had pretty good skills, but you know, it's a whole different thing, obviously, to be on camera and to be able to kind of think on live television was a very different thing. And so it was really a wonderful experience and I was really grateful, but it was a big, it was a big shift. Yeah. I started my TV career in just in Northern California, just up the road from San Francisco. And by meaning uh, just up the road, I mean, practically Oregon, in uh, Redding, California. And my starting salary was six ninety five an hour. That's how much I was making. But then, you know, I, I, I was there for about a year, year and a half. And it was, it was a hell of an experience. You know, I'm from New York City. So if you ever saw the TV show Northern Exposure, <laughs> that was me, you know, like I was the New Yorker in the forest with the log lady, kind of. But it was just a, an heck of a different experience for me. And then I sent a tape to a headhunter under the category of why not? Yeah. And ESPN found me there. How did, how did, C- did, did you go to CNN from there? Is that how I you? Didn't. I was working at Caro TV, which was an NBC affiliate. And then uh, from there, I actually had a boss who felt like there were enough women on the air. I wanted to learn how to anchor. And my old boss at NBC, a guy named Bob Zell, who did a lot of science reporting for NBC for a long, long time. And he used sure. to say, you know, get as much experience as you can. And I wanted to learn how to anchor. And, and they said to me, we have so many women anchors. Like, no, we're done. We don't want any more. And it was very clear that like their concept of what I could do was this, which was sort of fine. But I knew that I wanted to sort of stretch into trying other things. And that's when MSNBC was starting in 1996. David Borman, who helped start our show, which was called The Site, used to, when he would interview me, he'd say, listen, Everybody has a girl and a boy anchor. We're going to do something. We're just going to have you. It's going to be all you. And I'd never anchored before. It's just going to be we're 100% confident in you. you know. And then he tells this story at some event about how he would tell me that and then get on the phone and say, find me a guy to partner with this woman who doesn't know uh-huh. what she's doing. Um, right. So I never really knew that until many years later. But we launched the site on MSNBC, which died about a year and a half later when Princess Diana died, because that's mm. when cable news shifted into round-the-clock live breaking news coverage. And we had been doing a tech show 
taping a show. And so our cable show was both very expensive and, and clunky, right? You had to like tape it in advance and deliver it. And then suddenly you had breaking news and they really started covering, you know, breaking news every moment as it was unfolding. So then I went back yeah. to NBC News because they, I didn't really have a job anymore. I was still employed by them, but I didn't really have anything to do. And I kind of restarted over at NBC News. So a restarting, a rebooting. At any point in this time, as you're making your way through, how did you deal with the doubts that you no doubt had? I had a lot of confidence in myself and I, I was very clear about what I couldn't do. When I couldn't do a live shot, I would sit down and really plot. And the good news in morning TV is we were the show before the Today Show. So we'd have a 5 a.m. live shot, a 5.30 live shot, a, f- a 6 a.m. live shot, a 6.30. Like if you couldn't get it by the end of four tries. But every day I got to kind of work on my the same exact live shot over and over and over again, which was a tremendous opportunity. I didn't have doubts about myself, but I, I did feel, I did know that my bosses didn't have tremendous confidence in me. And for some reason, I knew that I didn't want to be at a place where bosses didn't have confidence in me. And, and listen, I, I mean, I, I I wasn't very good, but I was a hard worker. And I felt like I wanted to be in a place where people valued hard workers and would say, listen, you're a hard worker. We got to make you better. But if you keep working this hard, we're going to help too. And we're going to build you in a certain direction. And that was certainly the case when I got to NBC. They were like, we're going to invest in, I'm, I grew up in Long Island, so I had a Long Island accent. And they're like, yeah, we need to work on that. <laughs> they sent me to Juilliard to learn how to stop saying coffee and mall and call. Wow, it comes right out I'm of like, you. What? Call me later. We'll talk to what, you uh, Oh my gosh, that sounds like something straight out of Saturday Night Live, Soledad. That's impressive. And when I go back to Long Island, I can pick it up so quickly. You're right it's back terrifying. in it. Of course you Scares yeah, my husband. Like, who have I married? Who are you? <laughs> right, yeah. But I, I didn't have, I guess the one thing I had a lot of clarity on was, mm-hmm. one, I'm a hard worker, but also I don't want to be around people who don't believe in me. And I, that has right. kind of been my guiding light in a way of, uh, I was willing to work to figure it out. We're not operating on people. It's not brain surgery, right? We're trying to figure out how to deliver a show. Or my husband was very helpful. When I would mess up live shots, he would talk a lot about three sentences. And he would do a lot of like sports metaphors, which would go over my head. Listen, when you're down and you're you're about to punt, you got to like, what? But he's like, three things. Just pick like, just pick three things to focus on. And so my live shots became, I'm standing at the jail. Behind me, they're expecting to deliver the announcement about the prisoner. You know, he could be freed on September 5th and just kind of making it very simple until I was able to figure it out. And I asked for a lot of help, too. I think I was very open to people helping me figure it out. I had a good sense of what I couldn't do, but I knew it was doable. I just didn't want to be around people who didn't want to invest in me. I guess you were fortunate to be able to have the people around you to help you out. And I like the concept of keeping it simple. That's part of the vagaries of what I'm attempting to do with this podcast is people might be sitting here saying, well, sure, it's simple to say, you know, you don't want to be around somebody who doesn't believe in you. And sure, it's simple to try and keep it simple. But sometimes you do need to have the courage to say something or to look within and believe in yourself. Did you at any point in time, however, just think maybe I should have gone into medicine or or you just knew you made the right move? Medicine would have been a very wrong move. So I never right. thought I should go into medicine. 
no, I felt like I can figure this out. I just need some time. Listen, it's live shots, which are hard, but they're not impossible. And so I would ask people for help. And sometimes their advice wouldn't be very helpful. There was a reporter at NBC News who said to me finally, which really stuck. She said, it's like being on the phone with your mom. She's not stupid and she's not nine years old, but she's not there. So she can't see. So you need to describe it for her and you need to explain it to her and you need to slow it down a little bit. It's your mom, right? She's not 100% read in on all this stuff. It's really like a phone call. But over the camera, I mean, literally some people would say, pretend you're t- your, the camera is your husband, pretend. And I was like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> so no, I never felt like I should quit because I liked it. I just felt like, gosh, I just can't figure this thing out. And while I do think people have to sort of dig deep and figure out what they're going to do, for me, it was much more, I'm a tactical person. So I had a list of three things that I was working on every day. I had a list of like, by next week, I want to be able to accomplish this. And I think that was my my strategy to just have a, a running list of like, yep, I figured this. Yes, I figured out this. I used to say, um, a lot. Um, um, right. uh, um, <laughs> and I had to work on stopping that. And I put it on my list, three things. And as soon as I solve one thing, cross off the list and add a new thing to work on. I do that to this day. And so often when I'm trying to explain to people about transitions or what they want to get to, it's for me very helpful to just keep lists of like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to solve for? Who do you want to be around? What are you wearing? Like what in your head is the thing you're trying to get to? And all those things will help you figure out the career that you want to go for. So when you got to CNN, you know, just, I guess, fast forwarding through your stay there, because I know I get all the time, why did I leave ESPN? I get that all the time, like today. You know, some people will just hum the Sports Center theme to me in when I'm walking through an airport, you know, obviously pre-pandemic. And I haven't been there in 18 years, you know, so I understand, you know, how people might view me or what have you. And it really does matter as to how I view myself, obviously. But I get that all the time now. I'm, I'm wondering if why did you why did you leave? I was CNN. at CNN why for did- 10 years. I really I right. loved it. I loved I, I traveled a lot. It was very grueling. I covered a lot every major disaster that happened over the 10 years from 2003 to 2013 that I was there. In 2013, I guess, uh, Jeff Zucker came in as news president, and he made it very clear that he did not see a future there for me in the role that I had. He did not want me to anchor. And he said, we would love to keep you on. We have a job for you. It's not this. One of the terms of the job would be filling in. So I'd be Anderson's fill-in or somebody else's fill-in. And I guess two things happened. One, I felt like, "Mm, I'm not sure I need to be somebody's fill-in. And two, I have four kids. And by then, they were sort of in the middle school ages. And I knew not having a a, a sort of kind of regular schedule would be really problematic. Like it wouldn't be good for them. It wouldn't be good for me. And I also felt like I had won a bunch of awards and was considered a good journalist and and was working really hard that I thought I could probably make a go of of trying my own thing and, and taking the stories that I wanted to do and that I was kind of known for and just figuring out how to make a business around it, of which I had really no concept of exactly how to do that. <laughs> but, you know, again, it went back to this idea and it happened to me a couple of times over my career when you're talking to a boss who really is like, I just don't, you see a thing. I don't, I don't see that thing. It was very interesting to realize a couple of bosses earlier that you don't need to be loved by everybody to be successful. When I worked in WBZ, 
everyone loved me. And then I went over here and went to NBC News and everyone loved me. You know, and at, at some point, you know, to, I went off to, to Carowin in San Francisco and they were like, meh, she's all right. She's okay. And to realize like you can be successful, you can win awards, you can learn a lot, you can have a great career and everyone doesn't have to love you was a very empowering thing for me. I could go do a thing and just figure it out. I actually appreciated, first of all, I don't think I could work at CNN today because I don't really like the way that, that they do news, but I did appreciate one thing he did that other bosses generally don't do. He sort of told me up front. And I have found historically people sort of say, oh my God, we love you. You're amazing. We have such great plans for you. You're going to start by filling in for Anderson, but we have plans and, and it's a lie. And I actually appreciated that he's like, this is what I see. This is it. Take it or leave right. it. And so it ended up saving me a lot of time because I could say, well, I actually see something else and I could go hop and do that. I was, it was a very rough year, the first year, really year and a half, because I didn't know how to run anything. I mean, you don't, I, I didn't have the skills to run a business. We have 13 full-time employees now and five shows in production. And I do anchor a couple of things and report on some stuff as well. So, you know, just figuring out like the structure and, and right. how to do a business plan, like all this stuff. Wish I'd studied a little bit of that when I was in college. But I never, I never regretted the jump because it's sort of like having a boyfriend who's like, I don't love you. You know, you should leave. When someone tells you, we don't love you, you really need to say, thank you for telling me. I need to go. You know, it's funny when I left ESPN, part of the, re- and you just saying about that you don't like the way that CNN covers news right now. And the way that CNN was beginning to cover news affected in a way, the way that Sports Center was covering sports. And for two reasons. One is not the specific to what CNN was doing, but it was a combination of people were beginning to see the sports highlights on their phone. So my bosses assumed people who tuned in to the show I was hosting already knew the results, which was new. I started in 96, and by the early aughts, they not only assumed that people would know, but because I think CNN was the ad creator of the the bottom line crawl. constant scroll, right? The crawl at the bottom, I think that was based out of 9-11 to continue putting the news at the bottom. Am I right about that? No, that it CNN- started even earlier. It was the number one thing Americans complained about in CNN, the crawl. The crawl. Soledad, I was the only sports center anchor who went into management to complain about the crawl at ESPN because I was trying to set up a highlight or a story that I assumed people didn't know. And the final score was being scrolled right across my chest. So I was beginning to chafe about that a little bit. But the thing that really affected me was crossfire. Mm. I I swear, the crossfire concept of instead of me being the anchor to tell in an entertaining or informative way what was happening... I was now the anchor between two analysts who were going to come on and argue about why something happened. And their viewpoints were always figuratively black and white. There was no nuance. There was no nothing. And it was a lot of barking in my ear. And I'm like, I don't want to host this show anymore. And then when my contract came up, it was an executive who at the time named Mark Shapiro, who basically looked at me and said, you're a sports center anchor. And I'm like, I kind of think I'm something else. And I'd like to try something else. And nothing really came to it. Thus, I'm not with ESPN for 18 years now. It's that piece of like, I think I'm something else. I mean, I think that's what so many people feel. This idea of like, I think I'm more than this little thing that you're giving me. And But you got to follow it. 
A hundred percent. I mean, the thing that I found the most joy in my first year, which was really stressful, you know, when you start a new job and you're kind of like, I can't remember where the bathroom is and I got to ask that guy over there, you know, like that awful feeling of, I just can't, I can't figure it out. I remember when someone came to me and said something about my quarterly taxes. I was like, there are quarterly what? taxes <laughs> and they're due now. <laughs> um, we can laugh about that now, but that was pretty stressful. Um, you know, so every day was a, I just would like to get through the day, not learning something. <laughs> would just like to be like, yeah, I had a normal day. But the thing that was so interesting, I was sitting in a meeting one day and pitching an idea and how we would structure the deal. And everyone's like, that's a really good idea. We like the way you're structuring that. And I was like, holy shit, I'm a person who structures deals. Like I know how to do this. It's a completely different thing than I had ever done. But I knew I really understood how to do it. And it's a really great feeling to say there is this other part of me of what I like to do and and I'm good at it. That's been a really, really kind of saved me for the first year and a half because the first year and a half was pretty rocky. We were always profitable, which was lucky. A lot of my deals like leaving my exit deal from CNN, right? Required them to to take on a lot of production from me. So it made Mm -hmm. us profitable immediately, uh, which a lot of people don't have. So that was very lucky. But, you know, you still had the arc of figuring out and making mistakes, making so many mistakes. No, yeah, I I guess you are lucky in that. I I got a box to put my belongings in. (laughs) (laughs) And see you later. You know, they leaked my departure as uh, not renewed. It was tough for me because it was my only identity. It was my dream job. It was my only identity to that point in time. It's embarrassing. Well, it was, but I did have another place to go. You know, it just was a while to get there. You know, at CNN, when they would fire you off of a show, I left in the middle of my contract, so they had to pay me out. But when I was laid off of the show, they tell the New York Times first, right? So you read it, you kind of sense that something's happening, but you read it in the New York Times yeah. in the morning before you anchor the show. And then you have to kind of spit out that, you know, do a, a goodbye and you have to kind of set up this whole thing. And usually you have to anchor for two more weeks when everybody who's watching knows, you know, right. you've been fired. This person over here is now taking your job. I mean, it's so, it was so embarrassing, but Now I feel like, you know, if you can make it through that and treat the people around you well, you know, like I loved Mm -hmm. our our staff was great. Our team was great. Uh, You know, the floor guys were great. Like, you know, my goal was always like, we're going to do a good show and and make ourselves proud as we walk out the door. Like if I could get through that, then I could pretty much get through any humiliating thing. Yeah, because your identity is clearly, obviously, you know, the business that both of us are in. You know, our identity is a brand, you know, our identity is also what people want to hopefully turn on a device. You have to say it this way now. It's not just TV and stick with us and and want to hang with us. That means something. But deep down, though, it really is who you are as a person, even though you need to move on onto something and you may have something to go on. It's still an out of body experience that you have to really find the reserve within you to just say, screw it. I believe in what I'm going to do. Things may be tough right now. I don't know how I'm going to ever maybe reach the same success that I've just had, but I'm going to try. You know, certainly if you're moving to another job where you're competing with the place you just left, it adds a little extra oomph. For me, it really was um, jarring and it took me a long time to get to get through it and get over it, you know, yeah, it's, to it's- this day. 
it's really hard. I mean, and you're right. I, to this day, I have people who will say, oh, my God, I love you on CNN. And I just like today, to, right? Like they saw you today, right? <laughs> I got to the point. Flight attendants who apparently don't watch a lot of TV. So I right. finally got to the point. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Well, because, for, yeah, why? Yeah, why bother yeah. explaining? And it comes from such a good place, right? Like, what a great person to to say. Oh, that sure, I, I know. <laughs> Here, here's my here's my my story on that. One of the best parts about my job is, and I think I kind of picked up. Did you meet your husband through work? No, is that how you met? No, your, through oh, okay. um, in college. We met in college. Uh, okay, because so he was working. Because you, you mentioned he was working you through oh, your just, live he, shots. I just and stuff forced like that. him to help me with my work. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, I met my wife in the newsroom at ESPN when she started working there about a year after I was. And then she went to leave to Los Angeles to be on the air. And then she was going to move back east because we were getting married. And that's when ESPN told me to bounce. And then we were back to the left coast. But long story short, the reason why I'm telling you this is she was locked in with the Lakers and the NBA. And the first year that I moved out here to be on NFL Network, which was in 11 million households compared to the 110 million I was on in ESPN. We were on basically direct TV in small little cable outfits when we first started. And it was the NBA All-Star Game in Staples. So my wife had us all locked up due to her connections. And we were right in everything. So I'm standing there at Staples. And it was like early 04, right around the All-Star break of the 2003-04 NBA season. Some guy comes up to me and he goes, dude, I love watching you every Every morning. (laughs) And I, but so I, my first thought was like, so do you have NFL Network? Because I just wanted to meet somebody who actually had what I was on, right? So the guy says to me, what are you talking about? And I'm like, do you have NFL Network? I'm on NFL Network now. And he goes, you're not on ESPN anymore? And this was damn near half a year later. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And I swear he goes like this. He goes, wow, are you all right? (laughs) Like that. He asked me if I was okay. And I'm like, I can fog up a mirror if you want, you know, like I'm still the same guy. I'm, I'm happy I'm living out here now, but it really was one of those things where I'm like, shit, you know, I understand. Um, I listen, when I left NBC to go to CNN, the number of people who said to me, the today show is the greatest platform in the world. Why would you ever leave? And I was like, well, technically I anchor weekend today and like, it's a great thing, but I want to go do more. I was actually surprised. It surprised me. The, I mean, and good friends, like close personal friends, could not right. imagine that you would choose to go do something that was harder and more challenging. And, and in a way, you know, CNN was so much less known and, and kind of this random, our morning show was, meh. and we hadn't had this sort of, 2005 was a year of just back to back to back to back to back breaking news. And I think that was really helpful for CNN in terms of kind of its place in the, the world. I, again, I, I think the key for me has always been like, you got to go do the thing you want to do everyone's going to weigh in. And once you can just get past that and come up with whatever your answer is, right? I just found it easier instead of telling people that I wasn't there because they had said that they watched me every day. I felt I'd be yeah. embarrassing them if I said, right. literally, I've been gone for eight years. I just finally was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> I know. Because you're, you're still the same person. And again, that's part of, for anybody who's out there taking in this pod, obviously, we're talking about our businesses, but I think it still is very Jermaine, I think you can absolutely sit here and think if you want to try something else and if you believe in yourself and you think what you're doing right now isn't the right way or the right path and 
you're willing to take the risk. You know, again, it's good that CNN gave you some business when you when you left to start your business. But yes, (laughs) there you go. If you if you had that, great. You use what you had to your advantage. But still, I mean, again, and that's one of the things I want to hit here in the here and now in just a second. You know, I just started my own business with my show. I'm just learning on the fly. You know what I mean? And I can only imagine your head must have been spinning. But it's so much fun, right? It's exhausting and terrifying, but it like I really enjoy it. I remember my first year I had people, I work with a guy and he was so mean to me, my very first project. And I just remember having this sense of clarity, like if you're going to work on your own and you're going to work all the time and it's going to be so hard, at least you shouldn't be around people who are terrible, right? Like at least I get to pick the rule. Yes. And the rule is if you're a jerk, I don't want to work with you. And that was, you know, like it became like a little guiding light. Like, okay, so our company is going to have this. No jerks get to work here. When you work in a big place, sometimes you have to work with people you really dislike and whose, yes. whose values you think are bad and don't reflect you. And to be able to say, I'm going to be responsible for the tone of this company. Like my job is to make sure that the environment is good for what we're trying to do. Like that's kind of fun. That's amazing. That's, you know, I had no idea how to do it, but it was a kind of amazing (sighs) concept. How do you choose what you work on? How do you choose what you want your production company to focus on, especially your, your current project that I'll give you the floor on? Yeah, we, we, I think we think about what we're known for. We do a lot of reporting on race and access and inequality, kind of a lot of the, the projects and documentaries that I've done over the year. Sometimes people come to us and say, we want you to do a documentary or we have funding to do a project. Is it interesting? And I really have a wide range of things that I'm I'm very interested in. So rarely is it like, ugh, no interest at all. For things that are not funded, you know, if we have a great idea, we start marketing it. And then pretty quickly you can see, is it is it going to go or not? And if it's not going to go, even things that we love, if you can't sell them and it's not just going to be a labor of love, then you, you actually have to move it to the back of the line and decide what can you sell? What can you bring to a network? What does a network want to buy? How could you create this this project? So that's how you're you're deciding. How do you think your current project is going right now, Soledad? The project we're doing for BET is called Disrupt and Dismantle. It's been really interesting. And it was weird shooting it during COVID-19 because I had a lot of trepidation about getting on planes and staying in hotels. I mean, in the middle of the pandemic. I really enjoyed the, the concept, which was looking at structural racism, which nobody ever wants to talk about, <laughs> that right. literally makes people roll their eyes back in their head and actually trying to connect the history. What exactly happened here in this you know state of Texas that brings us to today and this woman who has 100,000 tons of shingles dumped in her backyard? Like, how does that happen? It's not just happenstance that there's a whole system and rules and redlining that happened not just in the state of Texas, but around the country that led us where we are today. And then being able to also say, you know what we need to do? We need to think about solutions as well. So I love the concept of being able to do both of those things. And I also see how how you handle your business on uh, Twitter. Um, <laughs> I love Twitter. And- too bad Twitter doesn't pay any money. I think I'd be like, if, if I could just have a gig on Twitter- Yes. That'd be amazing. So how uh, often does your finger hover over the send button? <sighs> Almost never. And then it, Probably it, it should hover more. Does it go to the cancel button? Not all, very often. Could- I do try to be more sassy than mean. And I think that I would say not not super often. You know, I, I don't regret things that I send. I've tried to be, I try to have a strategy around it that's factual and not just like this person's a jerk, but sometimes this person's a jerk is a factual tweet. 
Right. And when it when it comes to the state of Twitter today, I, I always wonder what is real and what's not. And by that, I mean, just because I'm seeing it in the palm of my hand, it's right in front of me, right? You're seeing the awfulness sometimes of the world in real time, right in the front of your hands. I mean, and that's the way I've seen so much of the awfulness of 2019 and 2020, and obviously the first couple of weeks of of 2021, just because somebody with three followers can fire away at me and tell me that I suck, you know, or put some sort of absurd counter argument that does not require a response doesn't mean that that's the prevailing thought that's out there in the world. I think you really have to have a certain temperament for Twitter. And you know what? Often some days I'm like, I'm going to go to Instagram and look at pretty pictures of horses. (laughs) That's what I need to do today. First of all, you have to realize that people are trying to goad you into a conversation, right? The only way that they think about growing their following is if, in fact, they're able to to connect to you, right? So that's what they want to do. Right. It's not real. And also, if there's ever any outrage or someone responds to you in a way because they've misinterpreted or you wrote something, but you didn't mean it that way, whatever, right? If you literally stop for 36 hours, it just rolls into the next outrage. You just miss it. There are days when I'm so busy that I haven't checked in on Twitter for a day or two and everyone's talking like, I guess Dr. Seuss did something. I don't know. I kind of missed it. Mm. (laughs) It's not back. It's gone. It was 36 hours. It's gone away. (laughs) No, believe it or not, Soledad, it's gone beyond 36 hours. You know, as a matter of fact, when this pod finally hits, it, it might still be going on. But there is something that you're constantly on with Twitter. By on, I mean, you know, on top of is members of our profession putting in 240 characters something that is a shorthand version of a story that requires far more nuance. And you believe and think that this is what the person actually means, and they might, but anyone who reads it without the context will think something entirely different from the truth. I just don't understand it. It actually really... It was happening for a long time, but really, I think under President Trump, it happened a lot, right? So it'd be like, President Trump says the moon is made of cheese, and that would be a headline. You're like, right, but but we all know the moon's not made of cheese. Why would you add erroneously, add lies, add experts disagree? I mean, first I thought it was just a mistake, and then it became pretty clear that people were doing it so often that it, it was a way to kind of get clickbait. Reporters didn't really want the context and the explanation and He said this, but this you got to understand that it was really just about getting clicks. And it was so sad and depressing for me. It really, I I think the state of the media, I love being a journalist, but boy, it has just been so disappointing because people need to do better. It's just so sad. And there's a million reasons why. And and so I, I have tried to call it out because sometimes I think, Well, you know, right, when you're in the middle of a thing, you can explain to people how the system works because they don't really understand it. You can say, let me let me explain to you how this came to be here because there's a whole system behind it. It didn't just pop up on the air. And so I've tried to do that and and explain to people. But it's just I've been so surprised at how bad journalists have been on things where they should be going for clarity. Now, obviously, everyone's going to tweet pictures of their dog and their kid and their Halloween costume and the cocktail they're drinking. All fine. But (laughs) if it's an area that you cover as a reporter, right, this is where you're actually kind of bringing your reporting to Twitter. I think it's appalling and it happens all the time. So it's been very um, 
that part has really bummed me out. Well, it seems it seems that anchors on TV need to be real-time fact checkers. 24-7, 365, that they need to have the facts at their fingertips and the number of times that somebody, a politician, would come on and prevaricate over and over again. It's kind of like the version of Twitter where if you continue with one thing after another after another, after a while, the first thing that would normally provoke something so monstrous, it could actually lead to somebody being jailed in trouble, charged, or losing their their seat, that's gone because we're already on to the next thing. And so what would you do? Like if I could put you in situation of Soledad O'Brien Productions is now in charge of, say, your former place of business or any other news organization, what would you do? What would be the first rules of engagement for you to tell your charges what to do? I think if you put people on TV who you know are lying, you are failing. So number one, you can make a mistake in good faith and you could even eh, slide a little bit as a politician. I think that's what they like to do and talk about kind of their goals and dreams and hopes for the future. But if you have someone on who literally lies, you should you should just never put them on again. That's my rule. If you lie to me intentionally, you're just never on my air again. Absolutely not. Number one. Number two, stories that have nuance can be covered like stories that have nuance. The issue isn't the fact checking of the anchors. The issue is maybe this one shouldn't be debated by two former Congress members. Maybe this one should be a reporter going in the field and explaining this really complicated situation for us. Costs a little bit more, might take him a couple of days to shoot it and edit it and bring it back. But like, wouldn't we want to educate people as opposed to having two people who are, some of them, making stuff up on the air? And I think that that's the thing I find frustrating. The version of people yelling at each other is very dramatic, highly dramatic, but it doesn't educate people. It doesn't inform them. And often it just spews misinformation. So if it's something complicated, don't go to them. If you want people's opinion on something, sure, that might be interesting. There's a, a place for that. But often you just need reporting. Sometimes the, the the talking heads contradict the reporting of the people they pay to report. I mean, that's insane, right? So it's a game. It's not really about informing the public. I would not carry anything live that is spewing misinformation. And listen, if you have a president who lies a lot, I'd say he's the president. We absolutely have to carry uh, his press conference. We're going to run it, you know, chop it into pieces and bring it to everybody. The president had a press conference. Here's the 15 things he said, and we're going to, uh, that were accurate and honest. And here they are. You know, you can, there's a million things to do. And this idea that everybody's hamstrung into taking everything live and putting on people, you know, on the air who don't deserve to be on the air is insane. It's just not. I mean, you can educate people. I do a show called Matter of Fact. It airs on Hearst. Because we're mm-hmm. pre-taped, we often don't get Congress members, understandably, because we pre-tape, you know, sometimes a couple of days before the show airs and, and we can't go back to them and get a fix on it. So I, I yes. often sort of don't go to them. There's a zillion other experts than Congress people and senators, right? You can actually understand the story from someone who's in the middle of it and who often isn't a partisan, right? They can just explain the issue to you. So at least people walk away understanding it. There are so many alternatives. I think it's crazy when an anchorman interviews his brother, who's the governor. I would never allow that in a million years. I don't, uh, in a pandemic around a serious issue, it's not funny. I, I, you know, that kind of stuff to me, that would end in a moment. 
No one's Just bringing for me into. No one's bringing me in to run it though. But <laughs> but it's so easy. Like it's not. It's so, not complicated, right? It's just saying we're going to hold a standard to making sure it's accurate. It's informative. People walk away with accurate information. And when there's a debate, it's going to be smart people debating something. So people learn from the debate. They walk away and say, wow, that is really interesting. I heard from a really smart person here and a really smart person here. Not two Congress members who jump in on any topic. That's ridiculous. But it's cheap. Inexpensive or cheap. Which one do you want to share? Could be both. <laughs> My mother or would both. say inexpensive, inexpensive. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask you about real sports a little bit. Oh, um, such a great show. So my wife was a producer for real sports for several years and we, we watch it and it is truly remarkable. It's very, very well done. And it's the gold standard. There's it's a no show that, that knows what it is. You know, I got to tell you, one of the things about real sports is that they, they understand their DNA. There's not like, oh, we're shifting yes. and we're going to now do this and we're now going to do this and we're now going to do this. I just love that. Like, you know what a real sports story is and you know what is not a real sports story. I love that. Is there a way that you check Bryant's notes on his yellow legal pad? Is he scrolling <laughs> People them? People only ask that. They're always like, so what's Bryant writing? Uh, he does a lot of scribbling. And I think he thinks yeah. about like little words. It's not really like sentences, but he's, you know, I, I, I used to years ago get coffee for Bryant Gumbel at the Today Show. Look at you. And so when and I started working at Real Sports, someone said to me, so you used to work with Brian at the Today Show. Now you work with Brian. I'm like, uh, I used to get coffee for Brian at the Today Show. And it's kind of different. He was the first play-by-play voice of um, football on the NFL Network. Because, you know, the NFL Network, when we first started covering games, the question was, well, how is the NFL going to have a booth that you can trust to say this coaching decision was not good or that call by the officiating was terrible if it's owned and operated by the NFL. And my boss, Steve Bornstein, who's smart enough to have hired me twice at both ESPN NFL, and NFL Network, reached out to Bryant to see would he want to call games because nobody was going to sit there and think that Bryant Gumbel was saying something just because the NFL wanted him to say it. And he did it. And I got to work with him for a couple of falls. And it was awesome. It was awesome just being around him. So, okay, Soledad, before I let you go, is there one thing that you can tell everybody, just your one tenet of success or belief in yourself from your origin story or not to just leave everybody with, Soledad? There is this mythology that the job you're leaving is the only job, the only platform, the only place you're going to be successful. It is so ridiculous. It's just not true. When I left NBC, it was like, nobody leaves NBC. And I went to CNN and ended up having a great career. It really built my reputation. When I left CNN to start my own thing, where I really didn't exactly know what I was doing, it was like, nobody really leaves this way. And you can, you can for me. It's always in the list making. Just it keeps me on track. What do I want to get to? Where do I want to be? What am I worried about? What am I doing well? What needs to change? What are the goals for next week? What are the goals for next month? But this idea that there's only three jobs is just complete bullshit. And I just really want people to understand if they do the research and if they really kind of make sure they're figuring out how to make that leap intelligently they can do it and be wildly successful. They really can. It's not brain surgery. So let add thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. And let's uh, let's keep chatting down the road. I follow you on Twitter. I'll just keep an eye out for more of your pearls of wisdom <laughs> that I really enjoy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You got it. That's Soledad O'Brien right here on Just Getting Started. 
Well, that was a lot of fun right there with Soledad O'Brien. And look, you know, one of the things that she talked about, because I do like to close the show with something that happened to me that either didn't feel like interrupting the flow of the conversation with my guests, but something that a guest says that leaps out to me was her realizing that what she was doing was not something that she wanted to do and she needed to do something about it. In her case, going from pre-med to TV, I can't imagine, honestly. I mean, I went from reporting at a local newspaper to grad school to small market TV, and then I kind of hit the lottery ticket by going to ESPN. But I knew early on when I was at my hometown newspaper, the Staten Island Advance, or as the locals would say, Advance, because yeah, I've got that New York accent whenever I can dig into it too. You know what I'm saying? It was an incredible experience. I worked with some great people, some great reporters there, but I didn't want to be a news reporter. I just didn't want to be one. I think I told in a previous podcast, my epiphany behind the wheel covering uh, the police beat, not wanting to chase ambulances. I mean, I was doing exactly that. And that's when I I applied to go to grad school, but I was beginning to get my first sense of, you know what? I am just not cut out for hardcore journalism. I'm just not, I'm not cut out for the hard news. And there was one moment, it was a terrible moment in my home borough in Staten Island. If everyone recalls George Bush senior, Poppy Bush, Bush 41 had a program called the thousand points of light where they would honor an American, an everyday American, for doing something at their job or in their community. They were a point of light, that somebody should do something for others, that somebody was a a pillar of the community. They were one of the thousand points of light. And there was a, a school principal from Staten Island who was a principal in the Red Hook section of Brooklyn, a, a pretty tough section of Brooklyn, who would frequently go to the homes of kids who were truants, who didn't show up and go and go get them in their house, knock on the door and say, come on, let's go to school. And he turned out to be one of Bush Sr.'s thousand points of light. And sadly, one day he went to go get a truant to say, come on, let's go to school. And he was caught in some gunfire and was killed. I remember the editor of my newspaper was looking for the lead reporter. I was not the lead reporter. I was, again, fresh out of college about a year or two. And the lead reporter, she was out on another assignment. Now, this is the early 90s. So there's no cell phones. There's no nothing. That that The lead reporter was one of the only few members of my newspaper who had this huge walkie-talkie system that had only the range of about two, three miles outside of the newspaper. She wasn't there. He looked at me. He goes, you, you know, Rich, or Richard, that was my byline, Richard Eisen, future shows, I'll tell the story about how I chose to be Rich Eisen for a sportscaster. But at any rate, he says to me, go to the house of the principal and ask the family for comment. And I was just stunned. Like, what? Go to the house of the guy who just got gunned down? They just lost their father. They just lost their husband. They just lost their point of light. And I should go to their house, a stranger, a perfect stranger, albeit from the Staten Island advance. But I should be the one to go Ask for comment. I remember I went to the back closet area where the supplies were and I grabbed a notepad and I might have sharpened the same pencil about 15 times just trying to kill time. I was, I had a pit in my stomach. I was just freaking out. I didn't want to do this. Like I, I, I just felt that would be so intrusive. 
sure enough, I'm getting set to go. And the lead reporter, thank God, she came right back in the office and was told about it and did a heel turn. And she went and she did the job. And I thought to myself, not anything ill of her, because this is what the job entails. You're a news reporter. You're reporting on the news that this thousand points of light principle had been killed. And, you know, you're covering it. And that is, I guess, to find out from the family. It was her job to do it. And it was my job to do it. And I just didn't have it in me. And I remember sitting there, I just can't do this. And so I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I can't break into the sports department. There was literally a 40-year veteran there, a 30-year veteran there, a 20-year veteran there. I mean, there was a small handful of guys in the sports department. So I continued to do the job, but I knew I wasn't cut out for it. And I felt that in the pit of my stomach. And then one day I just said, I got to do something else. It was very nerve-wracking to come to that decision. But thank God I finally made that decision and I stuck to it. I kept going until I got what I wanted. And um, it was a lot of hard work and a lot of doors slammed that you'll probably hear those stories about in future episodes of this pod, but just wanted to share that. I want to thank everybody for taking in this episode of uh, Just Getting Started. Please subscribe if this is your first time listening to it. Go back and listen to the library of the previous shows and give us that five-star rating because that's the good stuff. We'll see you on the next episode of Just Getting Started. Just Getting Started.